Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Welcome to this week's episode of the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Once again, we are going to be delving into listener mail. We're going to be answering your questions. And it's going to be extra special because, as one of our reviewers said, we are a bunch of idiots. So this week, we're going to try to answer your questions and operate our thumbs, and it's going to be amazing. To help us out this week, we have a special guest panelist. It is His name is Jeremy Balkin. We've had him on the show before. He is the author of Investing with Impact, Why Finance is a Force for Good. Welcome to the panel this week, Jeremy. Thanks very much, Miranda, and hi to all the listeners. We also have, joining us as usual, Joe Saul Sihai from Stacking Benjamins. Hey, Joe, how's it going today? Are you feeling especially <laughs> idiotic or are you feeling smart? You know, sarcasm doesn't work that well on the internet. I know, right? <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm not referring to you in your response. I'm referring to the, the to the person that said that. Like they're just being sarcastic. I've, clearly, they think we're phenomenal. Oh, of course, right? Naturally, yes, right, right. We also have Andrea Trevilian from TakeASmartStep.com. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm great. I'm just glad Jeremy's here to help really help us through this. <laughs> I know we need somebody who's not an idiot to help us out on this panel. We are excusing Andrew Sather from eInvestingForBeginners.com this week. He is on vacation. He's actually in Texas, which is the same state where Andrea and Joe live. So he's there vacationing, but not joining us on the podcast. No, we got him holed up in the basement here. <laughs> yeah. We're not letting him out because we have Jeremy on, right? That's right. Got to give Jeremy another shot. Come on. All right. So let's get right into our listener questions. We're going to go ahead and start out with a listener email from Michael. And I'm starting out with Michael because he loves us. He says, I've been trying to learn about more investing and stumbled across your podcast and love it. It is full of amazing information about a plethora of specific topics. So uh, right there, uh, he's starting out complimentary and his question has to do with his investing. He says, I am a young professional and I need to, kn I know I need to start investing for retirement. I have nowhere to turn. Everyone I know simply invests in their company 401k. I do not have that luxury as I work for a small engineering firm that does not offer a retirement plan. I know I want to open a Roth IRA for my retirement, but I have no clue where to open it or what to invest in. Let's go ahead and start there. He talks about looking into investment companies, broker managed accounts and managed mutual fund. He's looking for something that doesn't require him to have a minimum balance of $20,000 to $30,000 because he doesn't have that. He has a small starting balance of about $1,500 and he plans to add $100 to $200 every paycheck. So let's go ahead and start with our guest, Jeremy. Where do you think that our listener, Michael, should start? Well, I think Michael should start by putting together some form of a basic plan about where he wants to be when he retires. Uh, it's not clear how old he is and, and what, you, what age he plans to retire. But putting that aside, given the limited uh, starting balance that, he, that, he's, that he's working with, I think it's important to, to look at low-cost options. Um, you know, With a small balance, it's very easy to have brokerage fees and, and otherwise that eat up into the balance. So looking at something like an ETF, or, a, or something that will track the market, um, at least initially, 
um, which he can, of course, add to over time, um, is probably the most cost-effective method and, and way to start at this point in his in his life. And of course, I would encourage him to read up as much as he can, learn about the markets, do as much research as he can over time, because as his balance increases, then he can look to diversify or make direct investments elsewhere. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what do you think, Joe, from your perspective as a former financial planning expert, what do you think about uh, Michael? What What should Michael do to start? Does being a former financial planning expert mean I'm not one now? Does I don't know. I guess I guess you still are. I guess <laughs> Does I that mean said, that I, I lost all that somewhere along the way? Professional, you're no longer in the in the industry. I guess I should have clarified that. No, I get it. That's funny. You've uh, lost it, all of your marbles. I, I, clearly, I'm on this show. That's right. What am I thinking? <laughs> Yeah, just to pick up with because everything that Jeremy said, plus just a couple things that I would think about on top of that is how much money does he need to put away for retirement? What's what's that number? Jeremy said to, you know, build the build the plan so that you're looking at all the aspects of your life, which I totally agree with. I wanted to give uh, Michael a place to start, which is Dr. Wade Fow said something. He's got this uh, he has uh, the minimum amount if you're going to work for 30 years and then be retired for 30 years, the minimum amount you need to save and be okay. And he calculated that to be 16% of your income. So if you want to live on a 50% lifestyle for that second 30 years, you're going to need 16%. So I would start when you're looking at your financial plan with a number that's going to be maybe a little higher, frankly, than the than one a lot of people think. I also, assuming that he's just starting out, that I'm going to assume that he's young and if he is young, I like starting aggressive. And the reason I like starting aggressive has to do a lot with what Jeremy's talking about, about reading and becoming knowledgeable. When you've got skin in the game and more aggressive positions when you're young, you know, the cost of messing it up with $100, let's say you lose 10% of that money, you lost 10 bucks. The, the cost when you reach $100,000 of not understanding risk and reward and more aggressive investments is a lot greater later on. So when I talk about being being aggressive, I'm not talking about putting it all in penny stocks. I'm talking about maybe starting with the S&P 500 as a baseline, but then going up, um, uh, you know, emerging markets, small companies, mid-sized companies, things that historically are more volatile than the S&P 500. Great idea. And of course, you mentioned indexing, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> so <clears throat> Andrea, what about you? What's your take on this? What do you, what no, do you think Michael ought to do? I agree kind of with everybody. What I typically tell people just starting out is you really want to get your first like five to 10,000 into um, an index mutual fund. So you get that broad market coverage, you're diversified instead of starting like with individual stocks. The great part about doing this approach is as you're building up to that point, you learn about what you're looking for and what you do want to be investing in. So you kind of have this time where you're in the market getting the benefits, but you're also still have the time to research and learn about everything. As far as minimums, you know, a lot of people don't realize that many mutual fund companies will actually waive minimums if you set up a regular investment. Oh, yeah, so he point. might he might want to look into that so he can get his money into the market right away. The other part is a lot of retirement plans like Roth and traditional IRAs 
also have much lower minimums. So grab a few brokerage companies and just kind of see what their rules and regulations are on their index funds and get started. A lot of the time, the rules are different if you're going to set up an automatic investment plan for your retirement plan with these brokerages. A lot of discount brokerages and even regular brokerages have different rules, different set of management rules. And with your traditional taxable accounts too, if you if you say, hey, I'm going to open this, but I'm going to put in $100 every month. There's a lot of them that will just waive those minimums because they know they're going to get there. They have regular investment coming in. Michael had a really long letter, so I love, Miranda, the the nice job you did uh, paraphrasing Michael's question. But one specific question that you didn't read that he had that I want to address is, should he be looking for a financial advisor? And my answer as a former financial advisor is probably not. If you already know your goal, you know where you're headed, you've already done some research, I think a good financial advisor can make your plan more granular, can help you uh, uh, crystallize that plan and show you where your strengths and weaknesses are of the plan. But if Michael's just starting out and doesn't yet have an idea of where he want to go, a financial advisor's, you know, what's that? Is that from Winnie the Pooh where if you don't know where you're going anyway, I'll get you there? And I would just add that one of the places that I think is a great place to start in a place where I keep my own retirement fund is uh, Betterment. It's reasonably inexpensive. It's There are places that you could get away with spending less, but I'm very hands-off with my retirement account and Betterment has worked for me. I'm not getting paid for that. There you go, FTC. It, it's worked well and it's a great place for the beginner. Or lottery tickets. Well, I wouldn't compare Betterment to lottery tickets. <laughs> no, I wasn't comparing Betterment with lottery tickets. <laughs> I was thinking, no, John but- Stein's going to come to your house. <laughs> no, no. Seriously, if you spend $5 a week, eventually you're going to win it and retirement will be taken care of. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, That's- for sure. <laughs> no, okay. <clears throat> Disclaimer, we are not recommending that Michael or any of our other listeners use lottery tickets as a retirement plan. Yes, that was sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) So I make sure that's very clear. So let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Sheldon, and I have a feeling that we're about to anger a host of gold bugs, but here we go. He says, overall, I enjoy your show, but it presents a relatively unbalanced perspective. Your hosts often extol the virtues of index investing. I recently listened to your interview with Preston Pish regarding the potential deleveraging scenario. I had a distinct feeling that Andrew understood the concepts but was unwilling to rock the boat. So here we go. Shout out to Andrew who's not here. Good job, dude. The discussion guests also showed a remarkable lack of knowledge about gold and how it may be used in hyperinflationary or worst case scenarios a currency-free economy. The basic, This basic economics is covered in Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. I know economics is often taboo to those schooled in finance, but it's definitely worth a read. So he goes on to talk about economy that uses gold and silver as currency and silver being used for everyday transactions. He also talks about uh, gold being used in Vietnam to purchase houses because of how worthless the currency is on a regular basis. And then he also talks about uh, there being a reason central banks around the world do their best to accumulate gold and store it. So he says, basically think of it as holding cash in your portfolio. We shouldn't give it, expect it to give us an extraordinary return, but it's more of a value placeholder. So first of all, let's have a raise of hands. Who here has read Wealth of Nations? I have. I have. 
I have. Me too. So we've all read. Okay. So here we are. We have all read Wealth of Nations. And yet, despite how much we love Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, uh, how many of us are going to convert to gold as an investment? Crickets. So let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, what do you think about this idea of gold as a hyperinflationary uh, hedge? How do you think about using it as in your portfolio as kind of a placeholder? And do you really think that it would be useful in a currency-free economy? I know that's a lot to cover right now, but let's start with you, Andrea. What do you think? You know, I, I'm actually going to start with the currency-free economy because I believe we have grown past the point where that would be an issue for the entire world. So even if the U.S. economy collapses, another economy is going to step in and that currency is going to become the predominant currency. And you actually see that nowadays. You know, I've been to countries where they have their own currency, but then you can also walk around and freely trade in the U.S. dollar. So I don't think a scenario where there's zero currency anywhere is really applicable today. So I think you have to keep in mind that Adam Smith wrote that book a long time ago. So um, with that said, the other point I really want to make kind of touching on what he said is Gold and cash are very, very different things. Gold is not a placeholder like cash is. The last time I checked, my cash hadn't gone up or down at all, whereas gold moves all the time. So you just really can't compare cash and gold. They are two very different things. I think that's a really good point. We often think of gold as being something that has some sort of intrinsic worth. But even Adam Smith pointed out that gold is fluctuates in value and is subject to perception and perception of value and how much uh, he put it in terms of how much labor you could purchase with it. But at the same time, uh, Adam Smith even recognized that there isn't really a true intrinsic value to gold. He talked about how it does change in value according to perception, according to the way it's used. And, you know, even, even according to the way governments devalue their own gold or devalue their currencies. So, Jeremy, what do you think about gold? What is what is your take on this subject? I prefer white gold. Uh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife, my wife certainly loves gold. Um, although one thing, one thing, one thing I would say, Miranda, is um, I would never ever dispute the great Adam Smith. Can't really dispute him on on a lot of his views on gold either, because. There is a reason that central banks and Sheldon, please be careful. There is a reason that that central banks are the natural owners of gold as a you know quote unquote an asset class. That's because they're big enough to move markets. Gold is not a free flowing market. Gold is not a transparent market. Gold is not a free market, as it were. And frankly, if you live and breathe and 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 spend and consume in the United States, then you shouldn't be concerned about gold as a store of value. If you live in, you know, Burma, and I believe me, I've been to Burma and gold is very much a tradable currency like instrument there because they have no, no established financial market the same way we do in the United States. And, 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 and I should caveat that because I, I completely agree with the premise that gold is a store of value, but it's not something that a retail investor should have in their portfolio for very simply that it's not a tradable currency the same way you can go and withdraw cash from a 
from an ATM. Uh, you know, let's play out your doomsday scenario. You know, in the event that the U.S. economy collapses as we know it, and and I'm prepared to bet you anything that that will not happen in your lifetime. But if it does, it's going to be very difficult to take a bar of gold to uh, the convenience store to buy food in that scenario. But you can take a wheelbarrow of greenbacks to pay for something in a hyperinflationary scenario. So it's a counterintuitive thing. I don't mean to be devil's advocate, but it really scares me when I see those adverts on television at three o'clock in the afternoon, scaring little old ladies that the, the currency, their, their pensions are devaluing and they need to buy gold because there's a reason that big, powerful central banks are the ones who own gold and not retail investors. So I would just caution that. Um, and I also think there are far better alternatives to hedge your portfolio as a retail investor against inflation or inflation-like symptoms. But I don't think it's gold. And I certainly don't think at that level of, of, of scale, gold is, 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 is likable to a currency in this 21st century United States economy. Okay. And what about you, Joe? Where do you stand? I actually love this question because, and and it seems like, I don't know, every what, six or nine months, either here or wherever, I get the same question. So, it, it, which which just shows me there's a lot of people that don't, in my mind, have all the information. So, I'm happy that Sheldon's given us another swing at it. Walter Updegrave, who's a great writer all over the internet, uh, formerly was with uh, CNM Money, he, uh, uh, he pointed out that gold is eight times more volatile than the stock market. So when Sheldon talks about using gold as a placeholder like cash, as Andrea pointed out, cash, very, very stable. Stocks, people think that stocks aren't that stable. And gold, eight times more. That leads me to uh, to the conclusion that if I'm looking at all for some stable resource, gold is not the answer. I don't mind gold in a portfolio because of the fact that it has usually zero correlation to the to the stock market. So it can be a diversifier. But Sheldon's looking for, and a lot of people that invest in gold are looking for one set of circumstances to come true and then gold hits it, right? And if I'm somebody with finite resources, and I think everybody listening to the show has just finite amounts of money that they can allocate, allocating money toward gold in the hopes that this one doomsday thing comes true so that I'm right, and actually even those people I hope don't hope that that comes true, uh, versus using something that is going to work in a lot of different economies doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think that, you know, David Stein was on the show recently and was talking about gold and how gold doesn't have any, gold doesn't have any real use in the economy, you know, besides, uh, Jeremy's spouse buying all kinds of gold stuff. But if she decides that today she doesn't want that no, gold. Jeremy buying it for Jeremy's spouse. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, that, that is a, that's a, that's a, a big clarification. There's no industry that relies on gold. So that means it's all based on, you know, is gold the flavor of the month today or is it not? And gold historically for that reason, you know, as the stock market went up and up and up during the 90s, gold did nothing. And then in the early 2000s, gold went through the roof very, very quickly. And then gold came down incredibly quickly. And who knows where it's going to go next? Because, I mean, it's, it's so unpredictable. And to kind of add to that point, it's been a while since I've looked up the number, but a couple of years I was doing gold research couple years ago, the average growth for gold over 100 years was the rate of inflation. Right. 
Yeah, and 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 that's just something to keep in mind that that everything Which, changes over time. And as much as you know, Adam Smith was a great moral philosopher, a great economic mind. At the same time, we live in a very different society. He lived in a very agrarian society, and now we live in this very service oriented economy, especially here in the United States, as Jeremy was pointing out. And the way we interact as an economy and the way we interact with money is completely different. Right. No, and I think that I think that maybe that long term that it that it has the same long term return as inflation is why people think it's secure. But I just can't figure out, I can't get my head around why people think gold is secure. And maybe that's the reason why. But while it at least does what inflation does over long periods of time, it is way, way, way up and down in shorter periods of time. And that's a great point. And so I, th- I think we'll move on to the next question. I think we've kind of angered- Already? The- <laughs> well, you know, I think we've angered <laughs> the gold bugs enough for one day. Although I will say along, uh, along two points that have been made in the past- if we do have a complete financial meltdown and the entire economy as we know it disappears, I still – gold is still not going to be what I want. What I'm going to want is uh, <laughs> my rifle, my fishing tackle, and the fact that I live close to the mountains and can get my own food. That, that, that's what I care about in a complete financial meltdown scenario. <laughs> and I just need your address so I can make it to you <laughs> in a complete meltdown. <laughs> that's right. Come join me. Come join me. <laughs> So let's move on. Daniel has a question for us. It's uh, pretty straightforward. He says, I'm 30 years old, new to investing, just opened my first investment account this year. I've got a 403B through my employer and a Roth IRA through Vanguard. He's interested in, in investing in some single stocks, but many of the companies he's interested in have a high price. High to me is anything over $50. With some research, I found out about purchasing fractional shares of stock, but is this a good idea? Let's start with you, Joe. What do you think? Uh, should Daniel be interested in fractional shares? You know, uh, uh, fractional shares are fine if you have small amounts of money. If you're going to do that, I like using either a uh, drip program that's available through individual companies. So as an example, if I want to invest in General Motors, I might just go direct because a lot of the, most of these drip programs have either no fee or very, very small fee to buy fractional shares. There's also some online resources like Loyal3. Uh, Loyal3 is a place that works with a lot of the S&P 500 companies. Once again, I don't get paid for that one either. So we, we got to get some of these people sponsors, Miranda. Oh my but gosh, the, for sure. <laughs> pay his money, pay his money. <laughs> but I do like Loyal 3 for the reason that, you know, if I got fractional shares over here and fractional shares over there, I, I prefer to have a dashboard where I can see them all in one place. And Loyal 3 makes that really easy and has no, um, no fee to buy, you know, just if I've got five bucks laying around and want to buy a share of my favorite company. That's a that's a great point and a good way to look at it. These direct investment uh, opportunities are, are out there if you go look for them. Uh, what do you think, Jeremy? Do you think fractional shares is a good idea? I think it's a great idea that Daniel's thinking about retiring um, and, and planning for retirement at the age of 30. Uh, I'm not convinced that fractional shares is, is what I would be doing if I was him for a variety of reasons. But the one thing I would say is it's hard enough to, to pick – you know, which individual stocks to own in a market as deep and, and diverse as the U.S. stock markets. 
So how do you know which shares you're going to own any more than which fractions of which shares you want to own? I would be cautioning, you know, an alternative path, which maybe at an, at an early stage is think about, again, sorry to be boring, but thinking about something that is a low-cost way of tracking and capturing the, the upside of the market via an ETF or some sort of uh, uh, option like that. And then as you become more knowledgeable, uh, perhaps get some advice, become a bit more comfortable with investing, you may look at then taking a more direct investment approach in, in individual stocks. But fractions are not not my um, preference. Hey, don't feel bad about being boring because that's, that's how I roll. I'm <laughs> super boring with the indexing. So I'm with you all the way there. Yeah, Jeremy, I thought you were infringing on Miranda's territory when you said you're boring. I know, right? I'm the boring <laughs> one. Except I'm Australian, so I can never be accused of being boring. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> boring or sober, right? So on, <laughs> on to Andrea. Andrea, what do you think about fractional shares? You know, I think if that's the only way that you can get started investing, then I think it's a great plan. Kind of like Joe mentioned, drip plans are a great way to get started. It's one of the ways that I got started. But I also think a couple of things to keep in mind. One, many brokerage accounts nowadays actually allow like automatic reinvestment. So you buy one share and then just keep reinvesting the dividends. There's also, and I don't know what their current name, but it used to be ING Share Builder had a program where you could just buy fractional nonstop. So kind of like Loyal 3. So those are some options Assuming that this is because you only have, you know, 50 a month to save versus, you know, not wanting to buy an expensive stock because we we haven't even gotten into the whole, you know, price versus value thing, but we're going to assume it's a budget thing. The other thing that you can do is pile up that cash until you have enough to buy a regular share and and kind of go forward like that. I think that's a great point that that you kind of touched on there, the, the, the price versus value sometimes just because something looks expensive in terms of like straight up dollar amounts doesn't mean that it's not a good value. So now we're going to move to this question from listener John. He says, I found your podcast a month ago when looking for an investing podcast and had to go back and listen to all the episodes. That's awesome, John. You have got the full range of our idiocy here. So good for you. He says, I am a recent graduate, an electrical engineer like Andrew, another shout out to Andrew, and was wondering if you guys have any advice on being able to reach a state of financial independence in 10 to 15 years. He wants to be able to quit his job in 10 to 15 years if he wants, uh, while still having enough capital or assets to continue being financially stable. He says, I know wealth doesn't grow overnight, and I really like having flexibility. I was wondering if you guys had any tips. He also, just as a side note, he also says he has no debt and a large emergency cash fund. So what are our thoughts on this? Let's start uh, with you, Jeremy. What are your thoughts on financial independence in 10 to 15 years? John, are you moving to Zimbabwe or Thailand? Or, <laughs> or uh, um, I think I, you know, I'd, I'd love to be uh, financially independent in in ten to fifteen years. I'm not sure, um, and and to be serious, I'm not entirely sure what your cost of living is today any more than what, uh, or whether you have dependents, spouse, children. Um, you know, I think it's it's important to define what financial independence actually means to you. Like, put a number on that, and then you can work backwards, and you might find that it's impossible in the next 10 to 15 years or very possible again depending on your your current 
standard of living. But again, given the cost structure of, of the, the economy, unless you're a very high income earning individual, it may be unrealistic to be quote unquote you know, independent in 10 or 15 years. Although I must caveat um, that because usually the time I hear someone talking about financial independence, in fact, somebody said this to me on the New York subway last week, some guy started to, to literally chat me up and said, excuse me, sir, do you want to reach financial independence? This is a true story, by the way. And then he proceeded to talk about passive income. And I was ready to punch him because he was an Amway, Amway salesman or whatever they call Amway these days. So <laughs> nice. um, I would just always hesitate to, as attractive as some of these things sound, again, it's, it's important, again, to maybe think about what Joe said earlier. You know, Think about a plan. Define what it is that independence means and then work out whether it is achievable and work out what the time frame is. Um, but I wouldn't be too hard on yourself if you find that financial independence takes 30 years as opposed to 15 years, uh, particularly if you enjoy doing what you're doing, which sounds like you, you do. Um, you should do it for the love, not the money. I, I like that idea of doing it for the love, not the money. And I also think that that kind of goes hand in hand with, with what John said in his email about like having the flexibility. Uh, to me, financial financial, and I think it also depends on your definition of financial independence. To me, financial independence doesn't necessarily mean that I can uh, stop working and sit on a beach forever and, and just do nothing for the rest of well, my but life. It, and, well, but it, well, but it does mean, it does mean that. I mean, to somebody, to somebody it does. To me, it doesn't. Well, well no, because if you're relying on your income, then you're not financially independent. Okay, I guess that makes sense. So I guess I guess it depends on your definition. So, all right, Joe, tell us. How would you be financially <laughs> independent in 10 to 15 years? All right, all right Mr. Enlighten Smart Guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's give – Let's. Uh, I don't know how to help John be that aggressive where 10 to 15 years down the road. I agree with what Jeremy's saying that starting with a, a plan of how to get there working backwards is is the best way. But uh, let me give John a couple of, of things about what you can't do. I think what's cool about building a financial plan isn't just what you can do. It also limits and hones your plan so that you know you can be a little more laser focused. You're going to have to be incredibly aggressive to get it in 10 to 15 years. And if you're going to be incredibly aggressive, you probably cannot be an index passive person like Miranda is. You can't do do it. I don't think. So true. So true. You're going to have to be an active investor. You're going to have to assume a high level of risk, which means that you're going to have to study a lot because as we've talked to many different people that are traders, as an example, in the stock market, or they rehabilitate houses, whatever whatever the investment of choice is that's going to get you there, if you open and run a business, you're going to have to be active in it. You're going to have to be a student of it. And you're going to have to accept the fact that you might not get it in 10 to 15 years. But if you're going to go for that, good for you. But uh, but it can't be uh, – you're not going to get there passively. If you're talking about you know, financial independence means uh, you know, totally not having to rely on your, your income from a regular job, then, then I, you know, that makes sense. And, and getting there does require that you're going to have to take a couple extra risks and be a little more aggressive than maybe I would be uh, personally because I like <laughs> flexibility and freedom. I'm cool with uh, waiting for that long t period of time for my index funds to kick in because I personally enjoy my lifestyle. I'm a freelance writer, so I'm kind of in a different position. I don't have a real job. And so <laughs> – 
and I make a good income and I have a, a good flexible lifestyle. I go on vacation when I want. I'm here for my son, all of these things. Uh, and so I don't see a real need to, to quickly try and build up a nest egg to have that sort of uh, live off my capital assets if I need to in 10 to 15 years, uh, because I, I like, I like what I do when I have the time. So I think that it goes back to what you and Jeremy have both mentioned in this episode is figuring out your goals, figuring out what matters to you, getting that plan. And uh, what about you, Andrea? What do you think about financial independence in 10 to 15 years? And, and what does it mean to you? Well, first of all, I'm going to totally and completely buck the trend. All right. <laughs> and I think it is possible. And to me, it does mean being able to live and go do things without working. That is financial independence. It doesn't mean that you are not going to work. It means that you can pay your bills without working. So, um, and, and I think that's the differentiation. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to have financial independence and I am going to go sit on the beach, but you can be financially independent and continue to work just because you enjoy it. And kind of like that. Kind of like Donald Trump. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You, you got to have a hobby. You got to have a hobby. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're Donald Trump a has a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing to keep in mind is um, it just because you are aiming for that doesn't mean that means you're going to stop working. So here's how it's possible. And it kind of touches on what you guys said, but it's a giant math problem is all we're talking about here. You have to spend less than you make in a big enough quantity that you can save enough to go forward. The amount that you need to save is 100% dependent upon how much it takes you to live. So if you live in a rural town and your cost of living is really, really low, you have everything paid for, you enjoy hunting and fishing, and, um, and that's where you're happiest, it is absolutely 100% possible to achieve financial independence in that time frame. Um, if you enjoy, you know, the top level vodka that you can buy and you want to go on $10,000 vacations and you're only saving 10% of your income, probably not going to happen. <laughs> so it is about balancing out that equation of can I save enough based on how I want to live to achieve that. Um, you do then have to be more aggressive with your investments. And here's the other critical key that I think is really important. If you're going for a longer retirement, you need to have assets that are kicking off enough income that you're not dipping into the assets. You don't want to have to touch those because you're living off of what they're kicking off. So dividend stocks are going to take you a lot more assets to get to that point. Real estate would take you a little bit less. So the, there's a lot of moving pieces that with that you have to keep in mind, but it is possible. Okay. Uh, that's a that's a really good point. And I like this idea of strategizing and figuring it figuring it out and, and making sure that you are in fact spending less than you bring in going along with that investing aggressively as Joe suggested. So we've made it to our final listener email and this is from Steven and he has three questions for us. So uh, we're going to go for it. We're going to answer all three of his questions 
And, uh, and of course, he, he does gush with love for us. He says he loves our show. You have helped me grow tremendously as an investor, especially in markets I'm not familiar with. So that's great to know. We love, we, we feel those warm fuzzies inside when people tell us that they love us. It, it helps make up for the people that call us idiots. So thank you. So one of the questions he asked is, if real estate investing is not a great investment tool, as a few of you have mentioned in previous shows, then why bother investing in houses at all? I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do people who own multiple houses get enough returns to justify all the costs that go into owning a house? First of all, I think I need to clarify something here. When we talk about real estate not being a good investment, what we are talking about is the primary home that you live in, that you have a mortgage on, and that you are just living in it. We're not talking about rental properties that you can invest in, which is a completely different proposition. What we are talking about when we say that real estate is not a good investment, we are talking about your primary home and maybe your vacation home. These are places that you live in, that you use for enjoyment, for your personal lifestyle, uh, but not that you're renting out and not that you're actually uh, gaining some sort of income from. So I just kind of wanted to clarify that uh, before we move forward, because there are ways to invest in real estate and make good money uh, doing so. But you do need to make that distinction between the house that you're living in and the house that you're buying for income purposes. So let's go ahead and start with Jeremy. Jeremy, what do you think about real estate as an investment and, and how it works? Well, it's a great question. And thanks, Stephen, for, for raising it. I would simply say a couple of things. The first is I think real estate as an investment is a little bit misleading in the sense that typically when you hear people you know, boast about how well they done out of real estate, it's because they tell you two, two values, two prices. It's the price they bought it for and the price they sold it for, which, you know, no kidding. Um, but if, if you look at the stock market, um, you know, you've got a daily price. Prices move instantaneously, but all that really matters as well is the price you buy it for and the price you sell it for. And of course, how many gray hairs and sleepless nights you get in between buying and selling as the price moves. But in real estate, um, typically is not a liquid and transparent and daily price market. So that's, that's just something important as a characteristic of the asset class from an investment perspective to think about. Secondly, not all real estate is created equal. Do you mean residential real estate? Do you mean commercial real estate? Do you mean industrial real estate assets? And secondly, of course, depends on the marketplace. You know, not all real estate is created equal is, is a, you know, real estate investment, commercial real estate investment in Detroit going to be uh, as valuable or as, as a good an investment over the long term as, say, commercial real estate in, in Los Angeles. So I think it's important to really define exactly what you mean before you can make an assumption, a blanket assumption that you know, real estate is good or bad or somewhere in between. Um, but I also think it's important to, to compare it to other asset classes and look at the stock market over time. And you might find that you know, buying the index over the, the course of over time it actually outperforms most real estate markets or not. So I think to really sum it up and, and sorry to perhaps be a little bit too technical, not all real estate is created equal. So it's difficult to give you a blanket answer. But I, like I say, do your research and understand exactly what you're what you're getting into. I think that makes a good point that like all investments, like all asset classes, real estate is very individual based on what matters to you, where the market is, and your understanding of the market and what your personal goals are. Uh, let's go to you, Andrea. What do you think about uh, real estate? Where do you stand? 
I'm going to kind of ditto what Jeremy said. <laughs> he did a very lovely job of summing that up. You know, I think when it is a good investment, um, if you're in the right market, if you enjoy real estate, it can be a great investment. And I, But I think the key to that is running it like a business um, and not something you're going to buy and set to the side and, and bring in all this random money unless you have an amazing property manager. So you really need to approach it like you would your day job and, and then it can be exceedingly profitable. All right. Uh, good point. And to you, Joe, what is your take on real estate as an investment tool? Uh, I have absolutely just like Andrea said, just uh, w- what Jeremy said, because what's funny is when I was a financial advisor was that people are very comfortable saying, well, there's mid cap, small cap, large cap stocks, emerging markets, you know, uh, uh, Europe, whatever. You have all these different ways that we slice and dice stocks. And yet then they'll ask what's going on in the real estate market. And there isn't just one real estate market, but I will give you an idea. When we look at the when we look at the NARI index, the North American uh, uh, REIT index, uh, which is a specific type of real estate investing, returns over the long term surprisingly are very close to returns in the stock market. So, it, it, and it kind of proves that the, in my mind, there's two types of investments that reliably beat inflation over long periods of time, and that is real estate with tenants, whether that's industrial tenants, commercial tenants, or or uh, residential tenants is going to, you know, pick your poison. And stocks, those two investments are are ones that reliably will get you there. There are, there are investments that are uh, will just smoke stocks and real estate, but those are incredibly uh, difficult to predict, like, you know, um, uh, commodities, as an example, in a given year could could do very well, could do nothing. And then also uh, collectibles. But collectibles, once again, art, wine, I don't know. I invest in wine when my stock portfolio is down. Uh, how, I do don't you, understand do you keep it wine or do you drink it. Yeah, that's what, what I don't get the wine investing. Are, are you investing in yourself? Are you investing in escapism? What are that's, we investing in when you're investing in wine? That is what that ends up being, isn't it? Investing in yourself. All right. Speaking of investments and yourself and victories, uh, Stephen goes on to say, I found the podcast about the mistakes you've all made as an investor incredibly interesting. Perhaps you could talk about your biggest victories in investing. So let's go ahead and share our biggest victories. Jeremy, let's start with you. What is your biggest victory? What's your biggest investing victory? Look, without competing with the the, the great stories that you're all going to tell. I, I would just say the biggest victory you can make is by investing in yourself. You know, continuous learning, continuous education, traveling, whatever that may be. Ultimately, backing yourself. And if you think of yourself as the be- think of yourself as the ultimate asset you can ever own, right? Your labor, you, your entrepreneurship. It, that, that's the most valuable thing. So I would just encourage you to invest in yourself always, continuously. And believe in yourself, and that's where you'll get the biggest payoff. I love it. I love it. Back to Adam Smith and that whole idea of labor and what you're worth. So, uh, Andrea, what about you? What's your biggest investing victory? Going back to in the investing, like in the market, my biggest victories in investing, hands down, are when I am willing to step in the market when everybody else is running. So, with the corrections that have been going on, with every major downturn, I pick up really great stocks at a really great price and make money 
Awesome. I, I like that. That goes back to Warren Buffett and, you know, how he talks about uh, being greedy when others are fearful. And Joe, what's your greatest investment victory? Well, when I gave the advice to John earlier that if you're going to try to be financially independent in a short amount of time, you need to be really active. And one of those ways that I suggested was starting a company um, and growing that that company as an investment. And I actually did that with my financial planning firm. It, it grew very quickly. And then uh, in a 17-year period, I grew that uh, to give me a nice, nice win. So, And then I've, I've done it again with a, with a second company that I was involved in. But, uh, but I think growing individual companies are where I've had my biggest win. As for me, I'm boring. And so I have no real like true investment victories uh, like like Jeremy said and like Joe pointed out, I, I have invested in myself and in, in building uh, my my own company here. I'm a freelance writer, uh, but even that isn't something that's really flashy, I guess. It's not, it's not really sexy. I mean, I, I make six figures and I live comfortably and I can do a lot of what I want. And to me, just being able to manage my own lifestyle and build a life that I enjoy living is kind of a win. It's, it's not a very flashy win, but there it is. And so finally, uh, Stephen's final question to us and the question that we will end with today is, have you ever made any drunk investing decisions. <laughs> and let's start with you, Joe. I, I know you like, I know you like the sauce. So let's start with you, Joe. Yeah, that's right. Investing in the wine. I have to say that, uh, you know, drunk texting is one thing that might be bad for your reputation, but bad for your wallet is, is drunk TD Ameritrading or, or Scott trading. I think that's, <laughs> that's dangerous. Uh, you know, drunk investing uh, I do a lot of looking at stocks online while I'm while I've while I've had too much to drink or or <laughs> thinking about. All right, that's a great strategy. But oh, I can only think of one time, and that was I I had an investment in XM Radio, and uh, it had gone from three to over thirty. And I had decided to sell. And when I was drunk, I decided what I was going to do with the money. I believed in satellite radio enough, uh, kind of stupidly, uh, that I, I invested the proceeds from the sale. So I took half of it and I sold it, right? Because I wanted to diversify. I didn't want to have that much money in a single stock. So I took half of it, diversified it into serious satellite radio. And then for everybody that knows where that story went, those two companies merged. They had serious problems with cash flow and the stock went back down to three. So I essentially rode uh, XM from three to 30, tried to diversify out by buying the company that they merged with and then rode it all back down to where I started. That's amazing. That's an amazing, amazing story. It takes a lot of fortitude <laughs> to do it that poorly. That's awesome. What about you, Andrea? What What's your take on drunk investing? My life while well, drinking is slightly different than Joe's, and I don't hang out on my computer for looking. <laughs> you don't drink alone, Andrea? <laughs> I didn't say I don't drink alone. <laughs> and to clarify, when you have children, you're never drinking alone because there's always somebody else at least in the house. That's, That's true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How true that is. <laughs> um but I, I can say, other than making trades while high on life, I have never made any drunk trades. <laughs> so disappointing. Well, I, but, I, <laughs> but no, 
maybe if I hang out with you more while drinking, I can go down that road. <laughs> well, I think you make a good point, though, because part of the problem with investing is it's so involved in our emotions. You talk about being high on life, whether, I mean, you may not be drunk on some sort of chemical substance, but perhaps you're feeling a sense of panic or a sense of euphoria. Either of those things, making decisions when you're in any sort of altered brain state like that can be detrimental. Well, up on coffee. Have, well, <laughs> but you know, those, those emotions, that fear, that excitement, you turn on CNBC, that actually produces that chemical, you know, hormone production that can at times stimulate using a drug or a wine. So you do kind of have to learn how to control that while you're investing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what about you, Jeremy? Have you ever made investing decisions while drunk? Tell us about it. Jeremy well, decided to that, go on a podcast drunk. That's, that's what right. he did. There, there was that one time at Bandcamp. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, look, it's, it's a bit of a loaded question for an Australian because we're drunk all the time. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very rare to be sober. It's part of our constitution, in fact. I, I, I just have to plead the fifth on this. Um, I, I just, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I, secrets. All, all, but my only my only piece of advice is if you are going to wear the the proverbial beer goggles, um, then be very very careful when it comes to investing. I, I would say just turn off the computer and step away if you're going to have <laughs> if you've got your beer goggles on. <laughs> like Jeremy, I can't share any stories, but that's not because you know, like Jeremy, I'm sure there are some there that he's just not sharing. In my case, uh. I literally haven't truly been drunk ever before, so I, I can't share these stories with you. That's also disappointing. I know. Well, I'm boring. <laughs> I'm boring in every aspect of my life. There's no aspect of my life in which I'm not boring. And, of course, since I do the whole investment uh, investment plan thing, I do the dollar cost averaging with the indexing, it's really hard for me to make a drunk investing decision. <laughs> it's, it's practically impossible. So it's been a fun episode, I think. And we hope that somewhere in there are buried nuggets that will help our listeners make better decisions or at least figure out what matters to them. Before we go, I would like to invite you, Jeremy, to once again, tell our listeners where they can find you online and uh, how how they can uh, get your book. Uh, th thanks, Miranda. And uh, my book is available on Amazon. It's called Investing with Impact, Why Finance is a Force for Good. And I'm pleased to say that uh, the Pope has uh, given it his blessing, which had nothing to do with uh, alcohol, of course. Uh, is, uh, um, and it's available, I believe, in Barnes and Noble stores and all good bookstores across uh, the United States and around the world as well, but certainly Amazon. And I'd be delighted to continue this conversation via Twitter. My uh, handle is at JB Apex, J-B-A-P-E-X. And look forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you again. And once again, you can get all of our episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes. And you can find us at MoneyTreePodcast.com and our individual sites. And we want to help you invest in your life. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources.